agriculture meat is a new field, but it has the kind of key ingredients of conspiratorial beliefs to flourish. So we know with conspiracy theories that once people are exposed to them, they can be very influential. They can impact us without us realizing. It would initially make you more skeptical towards that product. It will change your opinion towards it. Potentially people listening now could learn from the communication strategies of foreign industries, of the governments trying to tackle misinformation with 5G. They thought, oh, it'd be fine. We'll just put out some information and people will just be happy with that. But of course, it's been demonstrated that that is just not true. Yes, finally, conspiracy theories. What an interesting topic. While we do focus on the term conspiracies, the basic principles we talk about also apply to the questions. How do we convince skeptics? How do we engage in communication? How should we deal with issues like fake news that will arise once cultured meat gets the attention of mainstream media more and more? There hasn't been much research done on conspiracy theories until recently, and Professor Daniel Jolly, from whom you will hear today, is one of the people leading this field. He is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Northumbria University in the UK. His research focuses on the consequences of conspiracy theories and has been featured on BBC, in the New York Times, The Guardian, Financial Times, Huffington Post, etc. etc. In 2020 to date, his media engagement has had an estimated reach of 1 billion people. I haven't seen the topic of cultured meat conspiracies discussed anywhere else in such detail, so I'm excited for you to listen in. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to Season 3 on Promoting Alternative Proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now and sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Daniel, it's really lovely to have you on Red to Green. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invite. You know, oftentimes people, when I talk to them about conspiracy theories in the field, some say, well, why would you care about what some weird people talk about in their niches but then at the same time it seems that conspiracy theories have become way more widespread what would you respond to that i think that is a good stereotype and a good misperception and indeed that was the perception 10 15 years ago where it was suggested that only a small number of people believed in conspiracies and they were on the out fringes of society they had no impact in essence but actually, polls have demonstrated that they are widespread. In the UK, 60% of people believe in at least one conspiracy. Similar findings have been found in America and, in, in essence, across the world. So this is a significant body of people who are subscribing to these viewpoints, where they're believing that there's powerful groups out there doing something sinister. And... Typically, they're doing something sinister to do with a large event or a large issue. So it could be to do with climate change, could be to do with vaccines, it could be to do with COVID-19 and it's all a hoax. It could be to do with intergroup relations so that one group is conspiring against the other. So in essence, what you find is that when people are drawn to these viewpoints, 
they can actually change how they act in the world. Because, of course, if you believe that climate change is a hoax and it's not happening, why would you reduce your carbon footprint? If you believe mm. that vaccines are dangerous because doctors and nurses cover up the dangers to make a profit, why would you vaccinate? In particular, that's very prominent right now with, of course, the COVID-19 vaccine. Again, if you think it's all a hoax or you think that something sinister is going on, you are less likely to want to vaccinate yourself. But of course, the basis is not in truth. These things are not true. COVID-19 is happening. The climate change is happening. Vaccines are overwhelmingly safe. They will help us with COVID-19. These are things that are based in facts. If people, for different reasons, going down the line of, well, they're dangerous for X, Y, and Z, that can impact the smooth running of society. It could impact how me and you engage. And of course, this field right now with culture meat is a new field. It is something that even me personally, I'm still learning about, but it has the kind of key ingredients, arguably, of conspiratorial beliefs to flourish. And we can obviously get into that during this podcast, but it's certainly to me, looking from the outset, potential flourishing ground for these narratives to really develop. Yeah, definitely. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you, because that aligns with my beliefs about the field. I think it's quite exciting that right now we are witnessing the emergence of a completely new product category. When I talk to some people from the field about it, I sometimes get the response, any press is good press. Uh, do you think that's true? So we know with conspiracy theories that once people are exposed to them, they can be very resistant to correction. And also, they can be very influential straight away. They mm. can impact us without us realising. What I mean by that is research has shown that if, when you're exposed to this, these narratives, it makes you think differently about that event. Whilst it wouldn't impact your behaviours immediately, of course, because it, you need to really much digest information and it takes a bit of a time for you to actually impact your behaviour, for example, you vaccinate or whether you use that product, but it would initially make you more sceptical towards that product. It will change your opinion towards it, which, of course, arguably a one-time exposure on a Twitter feed it's probably going to have a minimal impact. It'll probably fade away. But of course, prolonged exposure where you find yourselves maybe in a Twitter algorithm or on a YouTube trending page where there's different mm -hmm. recommended videos, you may find yourself, in essence, in a bit of a rabbit hole where you'll then be recommended similar videos, which of course will then reaffirm that, that prior belief. And suddenly your belief may indeed then become much more resistant to change. And it's, it's not just even social media. Interesting research recently highlighted that Amazon books also play along with algorithms, whereby if you were searching maybe to do with culture meat or the myths around that, I suspect there will be recommended books or articles that may be a, a bit more conspiratorial. The caveat yes. is not just one post, it's over a period of time. You know, like it's not just you read one thing and suddenly you, you're a changed person. That, of course, isn't true, but mm -hmm. it's that prolonged exposure that I think is more problematic. Yes, and also how it fits into all of the previous information that has been propagated. I mean, partially, that's actually an interesting point that was raised in our episode four by Jacobobo. You're saying by attacking the animal agriculture industry for being sinister, for having 
toxic ingredients in their meats for not following regulation, etc., or just for having bad practices, it undermines the trust in the food system, ironically, which may over the long term hurt the cultured meat industry or the alternative protein space overall. So how would you see the cultured meat conspiracies fitting in with macro trends before that, for example, the overall distrust in the quality of food, etc. It's a good question. In essence, it's all going back to that distrust of biomedical therapies, which of course is slightly different here, but of course it's science-based, it's science-driven. And we know that people who believe in conspiracies favor the alternative. So they favor herbals, they favor organic foods, herbal supplements, they pull back from vaccines. In general, if you believe people are involved in plots and schemes in general in the world, you are likely to believe in multiple types of conspiracies. So typically someone who believes that the climate change isn't happening will be also susceptible to believe that vaccines are dangerous, that the uh, Americans didn't go to the moon, that potentially culture meat is actually some kind of conspiracy to kind of change the world's population or it's dangerous or mm -hmm. it's made to make profit. So with the modified food, uh, a poll a few years ago found that actually 12% of people believed in the conspiracy that is to do with shrinking the world population. Well, of interest, out of the whole sample, only 19% have actually heard of that conspiracy previously. Mm -hmm. If you think of other kind of medical conspiracies, like, for example, that governments are hiding the cure for cancer as a way to necessarily keep making profit, 63% of the sample had heard of that conspiracy, where 37% of those people believed in it. So just from that example of the modified food, this area is not as widely heard of. People aren't aware of these things occurring. And of course, this is even asking about cultured meat. So I suspect if we can kind of predict the future, a couple of years where cultured meat is more in our mainstream. So I'm thinking like it's mentioned on the news more regularly, something that we can see and actually pick up in supermarkets, I think there will be a much more of an uptake with people being skeptical of that food because believe in an essence of conspiracy beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a previous interview, I think it was episode two of the season with Isha Datar, we mentioned this uptake curve. So you have the early adopters and then you have it getting into the mainstream and you have the laggards, etc. And it's this bell-shaped curve somewhat of increasing adoption. And I'm wondering how you would see this considering that once things reach the mainstream, there tends to be an uptake in negative press, in criticism, in fake news potentially. Mm. So how do you see this bell curve actually mm. being shaped? Well, when I think about this area, I can see similarities with technology advancements. So thinking of 5G, thinking of 4G, thinking mm -hmm. of 3G. But in particular, obviously, for right now, when we're recording this, 5G is a very topical thing to be talking about. And there are a whole range of, of misinformation, fake news, and conspiracy theories about 5G. Just thinking of COVID-19, there was an uptake in people believing that COVID was caused by 5G. It was built 
the, the antennas and that was what caused COVID. And then that then led on to people trying to set a light to these 5G towers because they thought if they could stop the 5G towers, then that would stop COVID. So for me, I'm seeing kind of similarities here with potentially the emergence of that technology. And I think potentially people listening now could learn from the communication strategies of people, of phone industries, of the governments trying to tackle misinformation with 5G. And it's still ongoing. I think from my perspective, it was a very kind of similar train journey with this that they thought, oh, it'll be fine. We'll just put out some information to say what 5G is, what 4G is, what 3G is, Mm. and that will be fine. People will just be happy with that. But of course, it's been demonstrated that that is just not true, that when people have these suspicions of, of the government, of people in power, that they're hesitant to engage in these new technologies. Thinking back to the 1900s where Spanish flu came, people thought it was due to the telephone, that it was a telephone that was causing this flu. So these kind of links with trying to understand big issues, big events, are always kind of coins next to some kind of advancement, something that the government is potentially trying to roll out. So I think with this, potentially it could be a very similar tactic being used in that people may think it will be taken on automatically when that actually may not be true. So for me, it's thinking about what can we learn from the 5G rollout now? I've seen so many great campaigns, for example, in Australia, where I think it was Vodafone were having, in essence, misinformation campaigns to try and highlight that 5G doesn't cause COVID, in essence. So potentially trying to pre-bunk people's misconceptions about this meat and in essence trying to highlight the positives in essence if there are any criticisms to try and tackle that to try and be upfront with that to try and highlight how these how this meat of course has been developed because of course that would be a question people wonder about people wonder is it safe so i think by being able to work through and see good practice from other things that have unfortunately had a very similar journey i think will be really positive Mm, interesting I feel that in our industry, information is seen as the great bomb to nervous minds. So when in doubt, just throw information on it or educate people. Once people understand the technology, once they understand the facts, then they obviously will like it. And once they try it, right? Actually, in another interview of this season, we touched upon how GMOs actually got a bad reputation by the companies over-communicating the big safety measures they're using. So publishing these long-form papers mm-hmm. describing the technology and risk assessments, da, 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 da. and that was again on the spectrum of over-communicating, making people wonder, well, if you need to publish all that stuff... <laughs> Well, it seems to be quite dangerous. So it's so counterintuitive. It's it's fascinating how irrational this is. So where do we strike the balance between we need to be upfront with what we're talking about, but also then if we talk too much ourselves about the potential dangers and risk and also arguments against cultured meat, then we are drawing attention to these things. Mm. I think what you raised there is this science communication and how it really needs to be targeted to the particular audience where the average person is unlikely to sit through and read a 20-page risk assessment because 
not only is that quite dry material for for most of any most of every everyone, <laughs> it's, they're not going to be motivated to read that. Instead, it needs to be a much more accessible, fun, arguably humorous way to get them engaged in the content. So the example I, I mentioned earlier with with five G and Vodafone, these adverts were short and they were engaging. They were fun to watch, but they were also informative. They were in essence using humour as a way to educate. So people were therefore engaged to learn about about this topic. Of course, if people wanted to learn more about the specifics, that can exist as well. In essence, potentially the campaign needs to have multiple facets to it, where you've got the more public-facing, engaging content that, in essence, can demystify some of the, the fake news based around a particular area, and also then more the scientific, where they can go through the risk assessments or indeed whatever it is. The majority of people would not engage in conspiratorial thinking about this particular issue. It will just be a small, arguably, minority who are more susceptible to engage in this type of thinking. So it's trying to work out how detrimental could that be. The NHS in the UK put a campaign about vaccines out, but then the comments on their Facebook or on their Twitter feed are then conspiratorial. So you've then got you've then mm-hmm. got concern of, well, do we as the organization or the charity or whatever it is respond to those comments or do we ignore those comments? Problem with responding is you're then giving light to these issues and you're debating that particular point if you ignore other people are then reading the comments and they're seeing that those are being ignored so does that mean that it's true or false so i think potentially how the campaigns and how this how the strategy comes deals with those types of situations is something that we need to kind of understand and I know from some people who I've spoke to, they, when they have those comments, they try and respond privately to those people and to try and offer counter arguments and try and discuss with them about that particular issue to do with the vaccine or whatever it is. But of course, that's problematic in its own right as well. And then, in essence, it's being aware of that coming and thinking of ways to try and counter argument it. So do you go ahead and you pre-bunk some of these myths? And then potentially people who are then commenting are, you know, with conspiratorial narratives, you then can link to videos, link to infographics that explain what has happened or indeed another route. Mm. We like that you point out that the information needs to be fun and engaging because in one of the other interviews with you, I remember you were talking about the issue that conspiracy theories, an overall negative, controversial press has a pull. It's attention driving. And to be able to counteract that, we need to possibly create storylines and narratives that are even more engaging, even more interesting. Mm. And I mean, we, we do focus on conspiracy theories, but when we talk about that, I always also think about just overall our media landscape and how journalism has become so attention driven, like quick attention driven. And as we know, bad news sell more than good news. For example, from talking to people in the field, I've heard that even if they would talk to journalists and send them nice pictures and tell them how to talk about it. So not call it Frankenstein meat, not call it lab ground, but call it cultured or cultivated meat. The end result would be 
the magazine, especially the mainstream outlets, publishing the stuff that gets people more anxious and angry. So do you have any best practices of how to deal with that? That's a good point, because of course, we know in general that anxiety and anger can breed conspiratorial thinking, because in essence, when you have those feelings, you're trying to make sense of that particular issue or that particular topic or that event. And by believing in a conspiracy, oh, it's, it's, it's the government or it's doctors or whatever it is, can at least try and make you feel less anxious, can try and make you feel less threatened. So potentially an uh, article that presents this area in that particular way may indeed drive the conspiratorial narratives. So I think, as you say, back to the point, it, it, the communication strategy potentially is really important as a way to ensure that the language that is being used isn't going to breed conspiratorial beliefs. Because, of course, people may already be coming into this area a bit intrigued, but also a bit sceptical of how will this work? How is it being designed? Is it safe? Which, of course, are legitimate questions to ask. They are questions I'm sure we, we will all ask. It comes conspiratorial, of course, when... You have those questions, but then you think, well, it's it's some kind of government conspiracy. They're trying to make money. Whatever they say, well, it's all part of the conspiracy. And then they, in essence, you, you discredit any evidence and you stick to your prior beliefs. So potentially people will ask questions with different motives in a way. And of course, fake news is different to conspiratorial beliefs because something could just be fake and not conspiratorial. It could suggest, you know, that... This, this meat has been made by doing something weird to it. I don't I think an example. Just weird, that isn't someone covering something up, which, of course, will be really appealing to someone. And potentially someone who's feeling anxious, they also pick up this as well. So I think it's been trying to be clear with what this is and how it's been developed and, in essence, try and pre-bunk some of, of, of the misconceptions. So it could be potentially, just thinking out loud, like have a good focus group with people to talk about their worries and concerns or their questions and potentially to see, well, okay, how widespread are these questions? Could we try and preempt some of these questions with some potentially engaging PR or in, indeed conversations? Hmm. A lot of that is inherently logical. I've heard you state in a different interview, conspiracy theories are inherently logical. Also, when people believe in fake news, there's also this pattern of, I don't believe any mainstream media, so I believe this single blog on the internet that has all the answers. <laughs> right? And yeah. The tricky thing is that the reason for these beliefs is so entirely irrational. So how do you address that, right? Can you fix that even with logic? So people who are already sceptical of biomedical therapies in general may be really, really sceptical of this type of, of new technology in essence because they're going to believe that the scientists have doing something shady behind the scenes. And in essence... It is all down to that high status power person or group rather who kind of supports this viewpoint. So some interesting research found that a biomedical therapy that was supported by a low power source was seen to be quite favourable. But as soon as that same therapy was supported by a high power source, favourability dropped to the floor. So in essence, it was the power source who was the one influencing that belief. In essence, whether the high power source was seen to be conspiratorial or not. 
So potentially, mm-hmm. if a variety of stakeholders are talking about cultured meat, not just the government, but for more low power sources, so thinking of charities, thinking of people who haven't necessarily got a vested interest in this area, they indeed may be more trustworthy. But I think for that bit of research, that could demonstrate that actually, is it really biomedical that is the issue? Or is it the power source who's supporting that particular approach? Is that the issue, potentially? And by having a much more, a larger stakeholders involved in the, in the communication, will you be able to get a more diverse range of people involved in that area? But I've always found that research really interesting, how that same product could be viewed very differently depending on who supports it. That's quite interesting. You spark the idea in me that maybe, especially in the cultured meat space, there's a, an opportunity to tell founders' stories because it does come not from the corporations, which makes it different from the GMO case, but it does come from a lot of individuals that come together aligned around values like animal ethics, environmental concerns, a belief in innovation and improving the world, right? There's an opportunity to build trust, not by arguing through hard facts, but by arguing through stories. Over millennia, we have been passing on information through powerful stories. Regarding the connection between conspiracy and and science, in episode four, Jacobobo argued that companies should not use science in their product argumentation because science is inherently polarizing and it will drive away a certain part of the population instinctively. And then I also talked to Rafa, who is the CEO of an alternative dairy company called Formo, who argued that in their communication, they focus on science. On the one hand, it is because they are addressing early adopters, but in a broader scheme, he believes if people don't trust science, it's something he wants to change. So he wants to communicate, science is awesome, look at what science can enable. What do you think about these two viewpoints? I think it's really interesting. I suppose it makes me think about COVID-19, of course, and the head of vaccine has been talked about in science communication whereby there's been, at least in the UK, a lot of push trying to understand the, how the vaccine has been developed. And at the start, lots of questions about, well, how has it been developed so quickly? I don't understand, which, of course, were not conspiratorial. It was just legitimate questions, which then scientists mm-hmm. were then going out and, for example, using their own Twitter feeds to explain, in essence, how that vaccine was developed. And you then got the NHS staff talking about the success of the vaccine and how they're seeing the, the impact in the hospitals. So I think potentially that science communication where it's directed and trying to make it accessible, I think is really good. Of course, when you've then got it much more complex, so we mentioned earlier about releasing a folder where you've got thousands of pages in it, arguably, of different risk assessments, that Mm -hmm. would not be something that you can digest. Potentially, I suppose, if you give someone that sort of information, they may push back on it because they just won't understand it. And then they may indeed think, well, what do we need all this? If someone was to send a journal article to me from, you know, a cell background where it's the, the the science of how this meat is formed, I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't want to understand it. But instead, a much more interactive yeah, seminar, interactive video, something on YouTube, even just using the platform TikTok, 
to communicate in a very more accessible, fun way will be really dynamic. Because of course, that kind of reminds me as well is when we're thinking about communication, you're thinking about the adults, but we've also got young people. These arguably, the young people are the ones who are going to be using this type of technology. They're gonna be using this type of, of meat which means that maybe it's targeting communication towards young groups. So by trying to demystify, and even from the early stages, targeting teenagers could be a really interesting marketing strategy, whereby we know from research that I've done recently that age 14 seems to be a peak time for young people to believe in conspiracy theories. Because at 14, it's when people are relying less on their family, they're thinking more to their friends. Arguably, that's where they can get a social media account, page 12, 13. It's where people are relying less on their emotional regulation and much more relying just on the emotions. So in essence, they're not thinking about how they're feeling, they're just kind of acting. Which means that the anxiety, the threat, the uncertainty, trying to look to see what others are doing, can make them more susceptible to believe in conspiracies. And I think it's good to communicate science. It's just making sure you communicate science in a very accessible way, such as podcasts like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the topic is so vast. And I think we've touched not just on conspiracy theories, we also talked about fake news. I think another topic that will be important is crisis communication. There will be a point in time at which something will go wrong and some company will have a mishap and then the media will be all over it, covering it in depth. And I think an important part of this discussion is that consumer adoption and consumer acceptance is not a linear progression. So people start eating things and they stop eating things. It can change their mind. Once they try it, it doesn't mean that they are won over and they're going to continue only eating cell-cultured meat. I think another thing that really nerves me as, as I'm thinking about these topics is with no GMO and no gluten and no soy, it, it's such a phrasing question because suddenly soy becomes something uh, that is inherently bad or gluten becomes something that's inherently bad because why would you otherwise buy products where there's a label of no soy, no gluten, right? And it's all these small psychological influences that will accumulate into how much impact this field is going to have over the long term. If we want to have a big impact, we want to have the majority of people switch to alternatives and away from conventional agriculture mm. um, products. So lots, lots of things to talk about. What other case studies or examples would you recommend to listeners to look into, to learn about how to address conspiracy theories, fake news or crisis communication? So there's actually quite a bit of literature that has come out of COVID-19 because it's been a floating ground for conspiracy narratives because in essence, it has all the key ingredients for why conspiracy theories flourish. You know, the anxiety, the threat, the uncertainty, big event, which means that there's been a lot of interest. But I think what we are learning is that it's a challenge and that of course, people who have these beliefs, they really hold on to them. They, they come their social identity, which means that people are motivated to defend their beliefs and they will engage in dialogue to defend them. 
So potentially it's thinking about ways that we have a much more productive conversation with someone. And it's not a case of going in and saying you're right and I'm I'm, you're right and I'm wrong. That's all I wanted. <laughs> you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> it is going yeah. in and trying to have a conversation. It's trying to understand why does that person have those particular beliefs to start with? Why do they believe, for example, if, if they do, if they believe culture meat is some kind of conspiracy to make profit, why do they think that? Oh, then, and try and kind of tease apart some of their psychology. Is it all based in anxiety that they're worried about what they eat, potentially? Are they just trying to offer some kind of reassurances to themselves about the world the world that they live in. And of course, it's also promoting people to think more critically about the information they digest, where for me, on a personal level, I try and think about the emotional reaction that I have to things. So as I mentioned previously, if I when I read something and I feel really angry or really happy by reading it, it's worth thinking, do I have this reaction because it's true or because I just like what it says? It's biomedical. It's biomedical therapy-ish. It's obviously not the same thing, of course, but it's very much in the same pot in my view. And of course, people who believe in conspiracy theories push back on that. And so I suspect there will be a mm. similar pushback on this type of technology. Yeah, interesting side note, the GMOs, for example, are more accepted in a biomedical setting than they are in a food setting. So people tend to be even more queasy about anything that is in their food and that they consume on a regular basis. To get to some of the ending questions, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest it in or in what initiatives? So I suppose because I'm really interested, biased in fake news, conspiracy theories, misinformation, I think it's trying to develop different strategies to help people think more critically. So of course, it's that balance of wanting to make sure people can ask questions and to question everything, but to be able to have the skill sets to think through what they are being exposed to. Having children in schools think through evidence and be able to give them the skill sets there could be really useful. In essence, do studies to work out what is the best way to intervene. Regarding food, sustainability, or agriculture, what is an un unusual opinion that you hold? that many people would disagree with. I felt like I've learned a lot by engaging in this podcast. I didn't really know much about cultured meat, really. It's kind of bypassed me a little bit. And that's why I, I talked about at the start that I think these are kind of the key ingredients for a conspiracy theory to bloom in the future when it comes more mainstream, when people are more aware of this area. Because as I say, even me, who's potentially a bit more aware because of my research area, wasn't really tapped into it. That's probably why I've not really got anything controversial to say because I don't really know about it. Maybe that's controversial in its own right, the fact that I'm a guest here and I'm, and I'm learning, you know, through the process. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> well, actually, I think I wrote you, you don't need to know about the field. I'm, well, this I'm is doing true. the transfer you, you work, that. so <laughs> you're excused. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, how can listeners connect with you? So you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Daniel Jolly, or you can just search me in Google, Dr. Daniel Jolly, and you'll find my web website or videos or anything else that I've suggested. Cool, Daniel. It was really, really interesting to talk to you. Very insightful. I'm very happy we got to discuss this topic. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. 
and it's made possible by a dedicated smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.